If you're new to our church, we are what is known as a Bible church. And that means turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have one on your phone, you like to, you know, hold on to the book like I do. There's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, We are in John chapter 20. It's up on the screen, the page, if you're taking the Bible that's in the seat. And we, this is the resurrection. This, this is what it's all about. This is where everything comes together. This is why there is such a thing as Christianity. And if you were here during our Christmas times, our Christmas services, I told you how interesting I thought it was that given that the Christmas is a big deal, the birth of Christ is important, it's strange how little time the writers of the gospels spend on it. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four stories of Jesus' life. And only two of them even talk about his birth. And the two that do talk about it, it's one sentence. Mary gave birth, boom, done. Um, It's the same thing in the resurrection. The resurrection is the single most significant event in all of history, according to the scriptures. It is the defining moment in everything that came before and everything that will happen afterwards. Notice as we read John chapter 20, how little time John actually spends on the resurrection of Christ. So follow along with me, John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed they did not know, they did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, 
unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, anybody a fan of superhero movies? Superhero movies always have to start the same way. They have to start with the origin story. Where? Where'd this guy come from? How did Peter Parker get these spider powers? Why can Superman fly? How come the Green Lantern's got that crazy ring thing? You've got to tell the origin story. The resurrection is the Christianity origin story. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just a guy. He's the guy that said some things we like and frankly, some things we don't. He's the guy that made a whole lot of claims and some people thought he was as nutty as a fruitcake and some people thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. But he's just a guy without the resurrection. Even Good Friday, getting crucified. Tens of thousands of people got crucified by the Romans. He's just another guy making claims. This, the resurrection, Jesus coming back from the dead. This is our origin story in Christianity. And how much time does John devote to it? Zero. We have no idea how he came back from the dead. The end of chapter 19 is Friday evening. And chapter 20, verse 1, picks up Sunday morning. And he's already been resurrected. We have no idea. Can you imagine if you made this into a movie? Can you imagine going to the Spider-Man movie and it's Tuesday night and tomorrow, Peter Parker's class, they're going to the deserted, uh, decommissioned, radioactive something or other, right? You know, tomorrow's the day. You know tomorrow he's gonna get bit by that spider and get those powers. And the camera goes to dark as he goes to bed Tuesday night and he wakes up Thursday morning and he's got powers and off we go. Nothing. They tell us nothing about how Jesus actually came back from that. None of them do. All four of the guys. I mean, they all tell this story. This is the most significant thing that happens in the history of the world. They all tell this story. None of them tell us how it actually happened. Did his body start to glow? You know, did he just sit up in all of those things? Was it like Star Wars, right? He like, he just sort of disappeared and his clothes went, and then he walked out. I mean, he walks through walls, right? He just walks on through the, the, the stone. It doesn't tell us anything. What all of the writers of the Bible tell us is how people respond to the news of the resurrection. They never tell us how it happened. They tell us what people do with it after it's happened. When the tomb is empty, he's gone. We don't know how. How do people respond? Because that is the single most important question you'll ask yourself in life. We claim that Jesus is God as Christians. We claim he was killed, dead, buried, and came back to life. 
And you got to ask yourself, okay, what am I going to do with that? You know, if we're talking after the service and I'm like, you know, that, that, that spot on your cheek, um, I think that's a malignant melanoma. You should get that checked out. Okay. I've told you something. Now you got to decide. You can decide. I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. You can decide to ignore it. You can decide to go see the doctor the next morning, but you've got to do something. Everyone in this story, they've got to do something with the news that Jesus is alive. And as we'll see, they react very differently. We all have to do something. That's what John tells us at the end. I wrote this so you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God and that you can have life in him. You've got to decide what you do. So let's look at it. How do people, how do people respond? And I so appreciate that the first person whose response John gives us is his own. When Mary comes in verse two to Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John's way of talking about himself. John is the youngest of all the disciples, church history tells us. Like he's 18 or 20 years old. Most of the other disciples are older. Peter is probably in his 30s, which is why when they run to the tomb, the 20-year-old outdistances the 35-year-old without any trouble. Like He is the youngest. He's the least of all the disciples. He, he never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Jesus loved even him, the lowest, the least, the most immature of all the guys that traveled with Jesus. He says, Jesus loved even me. The first person who responds to this, that we get his response. John runs to the tomb, but he stops. He won't go in. Peter, you know, the 35-year-old huffing and puffing, catches up with him. Wow, he just goes straight into the tomb and starts looking around. And finally, John follows him. And look at what he says in verse eight. The other disciple, the one who'd reached the tomb first, that's, that's John, our author. He also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, what did he see? He didn't see Jesus. He didn't see Jesus' body. He just saw some linen lying there. But he believed that was enough for him. Seeing Jesus not there was enough that he believed. Look at the very next thing John writes in verse nine. They still did not understand. John, I told you, John's writing this probably in like the 80s, maybe the 90s AD. He is in his 70s, maybe even 80 years old. And he is looking back 50 or 60 years on his 20-year-old self. And he says, I believed, but I didn't understand. Because I don't know about you, but that sure describes a lot of life. It's just not given to us to know many, many things in life. There are many things in our life that is not given to us to have certainty, to know, to be an equation, to, to add it up, to say, okay, this and this and this and, and boom, here it is. John says, I didn't know. I didn't understand. None of us did. But I believe. I so appreciate the very first person whose response John gives us is his own. His own 50, 60 year in the past when he writes this response. I saw that Jesus wasn't there and I believed. I didn't actually get it all. I didn't understand it all because God doesn't call us to understand. God doesn't call us to explain. 
In fact, if you've ever read the book of Job, when Job questions God, that's one of the things God says to him. It's like, okay, Job, let's talk about something like creation. Can you explain creation to me? And of course, Job can't. God doesn't ask us to understand, to put the pieces together, to have complete certainty and knowledge. He asks us to believe. Do you believe? That's the question. That's what John says at the end. I wrote this so that you would believe that these things were true. Because you can't know. If there were some argument, if there was some time machine that took a film of it, if we could know for certain, we wouldn't be having any of these discussions. Everybody would be a Christian. You can't know, but you can believe. So John tells us about himself. Next person he tells us about is Mary Magdalene. So she's gone to the tomb, the other guys have left, and she's just sitting there sobbing. And Jesus comes up behind her and she, she notices him, but she doesn't really see him. And he asks her, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she says what she's been saying all the time. Like, where is he? What happened to Jesus? Did you move him? I'll go get him. I mean, they've got to prepare his body. You know, they, they wrapped him up and put some spices on him on Friday night. They've got to do the full preparation of his body. She's like, I, I, I've got to get to him. And then Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And then she turns and she actually sees who he is. She's like, teacher. And look at what Jesus says to her in verse 17. Do not hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. The apostle Paul, about 35 years, maybe 40 years after excuse me, the 25 or 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. The apostle Paul will write to the Ephesians and the church in Ephesus and he'll tell them when Jesus died, he descended into the lower regions and then when he came back to life, he ascended to the heavens. And he says when Jesus went up, he brought captives and he gave gifts to the people. And Paul's using the language of something that was well known in their day, but we don't do it. It's called a triumph. In the Roman Empire, when a general had won a great victory, they would have a triumph. It's a super giant parade. Only getting a triumph, it's like winning the Olympic, and winning the Olympic gold if the Olympics are offered once every 50 years. Like, it is the ultimate honor that a Roman can have. And the general rides in. You start outside of town, you come through the gates, and you ride all through the city and up to the Palatine Hill. So you ascend and they'll make sacrifices up there. And he rides in on a war chariot drawn by four spotless white horses. And behind him comes his army, and they're all marching, and the streets are just lined. Everybody in Rome, and Rome may have more than a million people in it at this point in time, and everybody from the rounding countryside. There are millions of people lining the street. Because the other thing you do on a triumph is you give gifts. All of the loot that you have taken... <laughs> you give some of it away. So you'll have two slaves in the back of your war chariot and they are picking up gold coins and tossing them into the crowd. So everybody is there. About 75 years before the resurrection of Christ, you have the most famous triumph ever. A guy you've probably heard of named Julius Caesar. He conquers modern day France, modern day Turkey, and modern day Egypt. And that'll get you a triumph. And he comes in on his horse, his army behind him. Behind the army is the captives. Like Paul said, he, he led captives, he gave gifts, he passes out money. We don't know for sure the exact amount. The, the historians at the time, the guys who were there writing about it, 
They say he gave out 65,000 talents of gold. A talent is 6,000 days labor. If you make $10 an hour, 65,000 talents is about $30 trillion. He devalued the currency for a year in Rome. He gave out, they're just tossing gold coins everywhere. It's nuts. It goes on and it's miles long. It's him, it's 60,000 soldiers and it's tens of thousands of captives and they're just going through the streets and they're tossing out gold. Again, 75 years ago, your parents or grandparents were alive when that happened. Everybody knows about Caesar's triumph. Everybody knows what a triumph is. Paul uses that language. Now imagine, you're there watching Caesar's triumph. He's riding in in the war chariot, the horses, the crowd, the throwing out of the gold, and all of a sudden he pulls up the horses and stops. Jumps off his chariot, makes his way through the crowd to some little girl who's sitting sobbing on, down next to a building. And he, he gets down next to her. He's like, what's wrong, honey? She says, oh, my, my dad gave me a dollar to buy popcorn, but I put it in my pocket. I, I can't find it. I can't get any popcorn. And he pulls out a denarii, right? This was like eight, $75, $80. Again, if you make $10 an hour, right? And he hands it to her with a smile and he says, you go buy all the popcorn you want, dear. And then he goes back to the crowd, gets back on his chariot, and off they go again. Pandemonium, passing out the gold, the, the, the soldiers, all of that. That's what Jesus did. He is on his way in a triumph to his father, and he stops because there's a woman sopping at his tomb. And do you remember what she said at the very beginning? In verse two, they've taken my Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. She says that over and over again, three times. They've taken him. He's, I don't know where he is. Right? He answers both of those questions for her. I'm right here. They haven't taken me. I'm right here. You know where I am. And here's where I'm going. You know where I'm going to be. He answers both of her fears. The, the thing that comes pouring out of her every time someone asks her a question, he answers both of them. Nobody took me. I'm here. This is me. And you know where I'm going. I'm going to my father. Go tell people. Like that's, that's what Mary needed. I don't think she understood the triumph and the stop. And when he says, I've not yet ascended to my, we don't understand that except that Paul writes about it 25, 30 years later. We wouldn't know what he meant. She doesn't understand, but she believes because he did what she needed. He answers her fears. He explains it to her. John tells us about himself. He tells us about Mary. Next, he tells about all the disciples. They're all in the room. It's that night, the evening of the first day of the week. So this is Sunday night. They're all together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus was executed for treason, for sedition. That's what it said above his, his uh, cross, king of the Jews. He's a rebel. He's trying to set up his own kingdom. Now, everybody knew that wasn't true, but that's what he was executed for. So if you're going to execute the leader of the rebellion, you're probably going to try and find his followers. So they're afraid and they're hiding. And Jesus walks to the wall or teleports or beams down or something. But all of a sudden, there he is in the middle. What does he say to them? Peace. Peace be with you. Because they're afraid. They're scared, and the first words out of his mouth are peace. And what happens? They're overjoyed. 
Like they are afraid. And so he deals with that. Peace, he tells them. He turns their fear into joy. And then look in 21. Again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He is reiterating everything he's already told them. None of that is new. Think back to when we looked at John 14, 15, 16, 17, when he teaches his disciples and he he prays to God. He said all that. He told them, I'm going to go away, but the Spirit is going to come. I'm going to send you out. Just like God sent me out, I'm going to send you out. You will have peace, Jesus tells them. I, the Spirit, will bring you peace. I will be your peace. They are afraid. And they think it's over. Like John doesn't tell us this, but some of the other writers, like Jesus does the same thing he did with Mary. He's walking along with these guys. They don't know it's him. And he's asking them, why are you so down? What's up? And they're like, they tell him about Jesus. And like, oh, you know, well, I mean, we thought. We thought he was gonna do these great things, but he's dead, so obviously not. <laughs> he's dead, it's, it's over, it's done. And Jesus comes to them and says, what they need to hear, it's not done. It's not over. Everything I told you a couple days ago, it's all still true. You will receive the Spirit. You will go. I will send you out. You will have peace. He tells them what they need to hear. He tells them what they need so that they can believe. And then we get this famous story about the one guy that's not there. For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't with him. And so they tell him, You've got 10 other guys that you've been with for the last couple of years and they're all spouting to you, we've seen Jesus, he's alive. And Thomas said, I think probably what most people would say, which is, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not buying it. That is not the best explanation. So I'll make you a deal, right? If he shows up and, and I can see the holes in his hands and I can stick my hand, you know, remember that, that soldier stuck a spear in his side? Right, okay, that ain't healed three days later. If I can stick my hand into that, then I will believe you. Otherwise, he says, I'm not going to believe. And so a week later, the next Sunday night, there they are again. Notice in verse 26, the doors are still locked. Like they're still afraid. They haven't suddenly had this instantaneous transfer that Jesus says, peace, and suddenly, oh, we're fine. There's, there's no problems. As is so often true, these things are processes. that They take time. Jesus has to keep saying these things to him. So what are the first words out of his mouth? Peace. Same thing, peace to you. He, he's just saying it. He said this all a couple days ago, he, excuse me, a week and a half ago. He said it a week ago. He's saying again, we got to hear these things over and over. It's one of the reasons, Christians, we gather every Sunday. We need to be reminded. We need to hear these things over and over again. He says to them, peace. And then he turns to Thomas and he says, okay, here. Here's my hand. Touch it. Here's my side. Right? Put, put your hand right there. And then he says to him, stop doubting and believe. What he literally says to Thomas is, stop being disbelieving. Be believing. Not change the action of doubt to the action of belief, but change who you are. Stop being a person who chooses not to believe. And start being a person who chooses to believe. Because you always, always have that choice. 
You always have that choice for how you interpret the world, how you interpret what goes on. One person will look at something and say, praise God. Another person will look at it and say, yeah, stuff happens. You always have the choice how you respond to things. The kind of person that you're going to be. Jesus tells Thomas, okay, this is what you said you needed to to believe. Now change who you are. Stop being a person that goes to unbelief. Be a person who believes. And that, that is what Jesus, I think, says to all of us all the time. Be people who choose to believe. Because as we said at the beginning, what, what John says about himself, it is not given to us to know. It is not given to us to have certainty, to know for sure. And let's face it, how often do you have that in life anyway? When you take a new job, you don't know it's gonna be good. You think it's gonna be good. You expect it's gonna be good. You hope it's gonna be good. You have reasons for why you say that. But you don't know, it's not math. When you stand up in front of me and I say, do you take her as your wife? Do you take him as your husband? When you say yes, you're doing that because you believe. You believe this person loves you. You believe that this will be good. You believe that your life will be better with this person than without them, but it's not math. You can't add it up. You believe. And there are people, as he says to Thomas, there are people who are people who don't believe. And there's people who do. And Jesus says to us what he says to Thomas, be the kind of person who believes, because I'm not gonna give you certainty. I'm not gonna give it to you for sure. I'm not gonna give you a film strip. I'm not gonna give you pictures that were taken of the resurrection. I'm not even gonna tell you how it happened. I'm just gonna tell you it did happen and you need to choose. It is not given to us to know. But let me ask you a question. If you are not a Christian, right? What would you need to believe? That's what Thomas says. Thomas says, here's what I need to believe. I got to stick a finger in, his, in the, where the nail hole was, and I got to stick my hand into his side where the spear went in. You do that, and I'll believe. And Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for asking for that. He doesn't show up and say, oh, Thomas, huh, I hear you don't believe what they told you about me. What's up with that, buddy? He shows up, to, looks at Thomas and says, here. He gives Thomas exactly what he asks for. If you do not believe, if you don't think that this is true, that Jesus, I mean, everyone, he was a person. The Romans, the Jews, the Greeks, the Christians, everyone agrees he lived, he preached, and the Romans killed him. That's history. Resurrection, that's belief. If you don't believe that, or you don't think it matters, then what would it take to make you believe? Thomas says it and Jesus does it. Ask him. If he's there, ask him. This is what I think. If if this happens, then I will believe. But if you say it, you must be like what Jesus says to Thomas. You must stop being someone who chooses unbelief and be someone who chooses to believe. Because many years ago, I had a conversation with a guy and we were talking about this and I'm like, look, What would it take for you to believe that the the Bible is true? What would it take for you to believe there's a God? Do you need to see a miracle, right? Does somebody have to be healed? And what he said to me was, you know, that really wouldn't convince me 
Because honestly, nothing in life is like 100% certain in terms of disease. You, you, they may say to you, there's a 99.99% chance that you'll be dead in a year. But that means one out of 10,000 people won't be. So if you're alive in a year, then you're the one in 10,000. Right? There's nothing miraculous about that. I'm like, okay, well, what? What would it take? And then he said, okay, there, he had this relationship break in his family. Just this terrible, terrible relational break. And he said, okay, you know, that, 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 there's no hope for that. <laughs> like there's too much history, there's too much baggage, there's no way that relationship is gonna be healed. If that relationship, if that relationship were healed, then I would believe there's a God. And a year later, that relationship was healed. God did it. Over the course of a year, through all sorts of, of crazy events and things, God healed that relationship. And do you know what I said? When I said to him, Praise God, look, we asked him to do this and he did it. Do you believe him? Oh, you know, I mean, come on, relationships heal. That doesn't have to be God. Stop being someone who doesn't believe. Start being someone who believes. Ask him, what would it take for you to believe this is true? Ask him to show you. And when he does it, then believe. Because it is not given to us to know. Anyone who is a Christian here knows it is not given to us to know it all. It is not given to us to be able to explain it all. God is not someone who feels the need to explain himself to us. Why he allows what he allows, why he stops what he stops. Why he gives what he gives and why he takes away what he takes away. We are not given to know that. He does not explain those things. What he does is meet us where we are. I mean, if you're gonna follow somebody, because you are, right? You're gonna follow yourself or you're gonna follow someone else. You're gonna follow somebody in life. I'm gonna follow a guy who gets off his chariot in the middle of his grand triumph because there's a woman sobbing in his tomb. He's gonna be back that night. He just wants to reassure her. Just a few hours earlier. If I'm gonna follow somebody, boy, I wanna follow somebody like that. Somebody who is great and powerful and is ascending into heaven with trains and captives and giving out gifts. And he stops all of it because there's a woman crying at his tomb. And he just wants to let her know, hey, it'll be okay. I will be back. I'm just going to see my father. Go tell everyone, it'll be okay. It's not given for us to know, but it is given to us to believe. That's what John tells us. All this is written so that you will believe. That's what John did. John, John didn't know. He didn't have certainty. He didn't understand but he'd been with Jesus. All the things we've talked about, we started in John 1, made our way through John. All of those stories, John took all of that, saw that Jesus wasn't in that tomb, and he believed. That's what God calls us to do. If you do believe, if you are a follower of Christ, then praise God. Do not be surprised that there's all sorts of things you do not know or understand. Because John, as probably 70 or 80 years old, says, yep, I didn't get that part. None of us did. 
Do not be surprised that there are all sorts of things in following Christ that you don't have certainty on and you don't understand. We're not called to that. We're called to be people who believe. And if you do not believe in Christ, somebody dragged you here, it's Easter, you know, as a favor to your mom, you agreed to come, right? What would, what would need to happen? Be Thomas, right? Be Thomas. Thomas gets exactly what he asked for. This is what I need to believe. Ask him. It seems like he's the kind of guy that will do it. Ask him what you need. Oh, and then when he does it, you need to be like Thomas, my Lord and my God. That's the first time anybody in the Bible has ever called Jesus God. That's blasphemy in Judaism. But Thomas gets it. Thomas gets who he is, what he's done. Ask him. And when he does it, then be like Thomas. Believe. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. I mean, today of all days, <laughs> thank you. But we say what we always say, Lord. You didn't have to do this. You could have been just. You could have left us. You could have left us to die because that was our choice. You told us if we disobeyed you, then we would let death in the world and we would die. And so we did. You could have had tough love and we would get exactly what we deserved. We would die and stay dead. But as scripture says, you are merciful. You are full of compassion. When we hated you, you loved us. And when we were your enemies, you died for us. And then you came back. You did not stay dead. Just as we sang, you walked out of the grave. So we will too. You did that for us. You dealt with our sin on the cross. You dealt with our mortality in the grave, in the empty tomb. Thank you. We are so, so grateful, Lord. I pray for all of us who know you, who do believe. Jesus, thank you. We, we worship you. We do just as the psalm we read this morning before the service said, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And we do. We have breath because of you. And we will have it forever. We too will walk out of the grave just like you did. And we will gladly praise you with it. Even though you do not give us to know, you do not give us to understand all of it. You do not give us certainty, but we believe. And Jesus, I pray for anyone who doesn't believe that, that, that they, they just, they don't buy it. They don't think it's true. Whatever it is, I pray that you would do for them just what you did for Thomas. You would show up in whatever it is that they need. I pray that you would show up and then challenge them just like you did Thomas to stop being someone who doesn't believe and start being someone who does. You did it for Thomas, Lord. I think you did it for Mary. I think you did it for all the disciples. I think you met them with what they needed in your kindness and your generosity. I pray that for all of us, that you would meet us in your kindness and your generosity. And I pray for folks that don't believe you, that today they would, that, that, that today they would understand that, that you would be at work in us so that we can say the same thing Thomas said, you are our Lord and you are our God. And so, Jesus, because you are our Lord and our God, we pray in your name always. Amen.